Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in the study of God's Word. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Last week concluded our Advent series through the book of Psalms. I'm thankful for all the preparation that went into making that month happen, for all the guys and delivering God's word, uh, for the choir and special programs and all the stuff that went on behind the scenes. Uh, There's a lot to make that happen, so thank you all. And most of all, we can be thankful that our church body right here in Montrose, God has given us all the parts needed to worship him and minister to others. And after just having spent the last four weeks in the Psalms beholding the King of Glory, today as we return to the book of Philippians, what we will see is one of the many fantastic results that become available to those that have surrendered their life over to this King. If we remember back to before Advent, we'll recall that the Apostle Paul was shifting gears as he moved into chapter four of our text. He had been teaching through means of examples throughout chapters two and three, and he brought that section of teaching to a close in chapter four, verse one. Then in verses two two and three of chapter four, Paul urges two women who are at odds with one another to live in harmony with the Lord and asks that they come together for their own unity and the unity of the entire church. And then in verses four through nine, Paul lays out two sets of commands and the correlating promises for those who are willing to obey. The first set, rejoice in the Lord always, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, and be anxious for nothing, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the second set, dwell on these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And this brings us up to where we find ourselves this morning, verse 10. And here we are introduced to the thought that flows throughout the remaining body of this letter. Paul is thankful to the Philippians for the generous gift that they have given him. His thankfulness for their gift unites verses 10 through 20, and verses 21 through 23 bring this letter to a close. And this morning we'll be studying verses 10 through 13, and next week we'll conclude our study in verses 14 through 23. If you're not there already, turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So reads the word of the living God. 
And starting in verse 10, we see that Paul is once again rejoicing, greatly rejoicing this time. And we also see the object and the occasion for his rejoicing. The text clearly reveals both. The object is the Lord, and the occasion is the Philippians' revived concern for Paul, which they expressed through the sending of a gift. And as we discussed last time we studied Philippians, rejoicing in the Lord is not a casual request that Scripture makes, but rather a command. And it's good to see that Paul is indeed practicing what he's preaching, for we find him here rejoicing in the Lord. He's rejoicing that the Philippians' concern was revived. And the word revived that he uses here means to flourish again. It has in mind a plant budding and taking on new leaves in the spring after lying dormant during the winter months. And Paul knew that the Philippians' concern for him was always there. They just lacked the opportunity to show it. He says as much in the latter part of verse 10. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And this statement is the first of two clarifying comments that Paul makes in regards to the in regards to his rejoicing in the Lord over the Philippians gift. And this first one he adds in to make sure that his thankfulness to the Philippians doesn't come across as offensive or backhanded, which is easily understandable if we just read the first part of the verse without the latter. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me, period. If that's what that verse said, it's not that difficult to imagine yourself in the Philippian shoes reading this letter and being slightly hurt by that comment. Thank you guys for finally getting with the program and sending me another gift. It's been years since I received the last one. I almost concluded that you no longer cared. So thanks for doing what you should have been doing all along. That could have been how their minds took it. But that's not what Paul is after at all. He knows his friends well, and he knows their concern was always there. He assures them that he knows the lapse between gifts was not from a lack of caring, but from a lack of opportunity. It was always there, but this new season of his imprisonment has allowed their leaves of generosity to bloom again and show forth their true beauty. And this leads us up to verse 11, which is the beginning of Paul's second clarifying comment. Just as Paul did not want his friends to misunderstand his gratitude as a backhanded thanks, neither does he want them to misunderstand the reason why he is thankful or rejoicing. Verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the second clarifier is that he is not speaking from want or because he is in need. And if we remember the background circumstances that Paul is facing, when we think of this statement, our minds, and even more so the Philippians, might be tempted to interject and chime in, 
what do you mean you're not in want or need of anything, Paul? You've been locked up in jail for anywhere from one to three years, during which time you have no means of income, your supplies and basic needs are all but diminished. If anyone should be speaking out of want or need, it's you, Paul. So please skip over the charade. Yet, as we'll see in this text, what Paul is saying is not some cheap, hollow claim, but rather a rich, concrete conviction. He is thankful and he rejoices in the Lord because of their gift, but not because he is speaking out of want. And to this, we ask how. Paul, how are you not speaking out of want or need in the situation that you're currently in? And his answer, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And once again, the apostle doesn't shy away from using his own life to teach the Philippians and us how to learn this same thing. For Paul didn't arrive at this destination of contentment overnight. It was something that he too had to learn. And he invites his readers to come into the classroom and learn with him and from him. For this is the road on which Paul himself and all believers must travel in order to arrive at the destination of contentment. It's not some program that can be downloaded or updated into us overnight. It's something that must be learned. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for learned is menthano, which means to understand, to find out, or to discover. And it carries with it the idea of learning by instruction, practice, and experience. The same word is used of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And this verse helps us to see how Jesus' learning process of obedience is similar to our learning process of being content. Commentator David Garland can help us see this from his comments on Hebrews 5.8. In this context, to learn obedience means not to become obedient after having been disobedient, but to discover in personal experience what obedience and obedience that involves suffering really means. Only by coming to share our human condition could the Son of God know this experience. And likewise, we discover in personal experience what being content really means. Only by being placed into situations that will test our contentment can we know this experience for ourselves. The word that's used by the Apostle Paul for the word content is outer case. And this is the only use of this exact Greek word in the New Testament, but it's used once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, which says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, my outer case. And looking to this usage in the Septuagint and also how a closely related word in 1 Timothy and 2 Corinthians can help us better understand what Paul is after. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. 2 Corinthians 9.8, 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. When Paul uses this word, out our case, what he has in mind is being content, satisfied, and self-sufficient. And this is what Paul learned through instruction, practice, and experience. And now that we understand the process in which Paul learned to be content and what he has in mind when he speaks of contentment, let's move on and look what else Paul has to teach us. For there's a great many more lessons to be learned from this text. Some are right on the surface and easier to see. Some are a bit deeper and need a little work to pull out. The first lesson that we can see chronologically in our text that has helped Paul learn to be content is one that we passed over because we first needed the proper groundwork to appreciate it. It's one that's harder to see, but nonetheless, it's still within this text. Look again to the beginning of verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. We've already discussed the object and the occasion for Paul's rejoicing, but when we look at these two things together, it reveals a larger lesson that he has already learned about the Lord and is now putting into practice. He rejoices in the Lord because the Philippians revived their concern for him and sent him a gift. Simply put, the Philippians did something and he rejoices in God because of it. Yet, on a practical level, wouldn't it make more sense for Paul's rejoicing to be aimed at the Philippians? Because, after all, they are the ones that sent him the gift. It was their stuff that was earned through their work. It was delivered by their messenger because they sent him. On the surface, it would seem as if the Lord had nothing to do with this transaction. So, why is Paul rejoicing in the Lord? He's doing so because he understands the Lord's providence. Paul knows that he received this gift from the hands of the Philippians, but he also knows that the Lord is the one who set up this whole transaction. The Lord was the one that directed Paul to Macedonia in the first place. The Lord is the one who opened up Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord is the one who caused the earthquake that led to Paul being able to share with the jailkeeper and him coming to faith with his whole household. The Lord is the one who kept growing and sustaining his church in Philippi. He is the one who imparted grace to the Philippians so that their heart would be open and willing to share. He is the one who kept breath in their lungs and strength in their backs so that they would be able to keep on work, working. The Lord is the one who did all of these things and so many more. The Philippians were simply the channel through which this gift flowed. And Wayne Grudem in his book, Bible Doctrine, says this when teaching about God's providence. The divine cause of each event works as an invisible, behind-the-scenes directing cause, and therefore could be called the primary cause that plans and initiates everything that happens. But the created thing brings out actions in ways consistent with the creature's own properties, ways that can often be discerned through observation. These creaturely factors and properties can therefore 
be called the secondary causes of everything that happens, even though they are the causes that are most evident to us. In Proverbs 16, speaks very clearly of the Lord's providence. Verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In verse nine, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Paul has learned and understands the Lord's providence. And the second lesson that we can see in our text that has helped Paul learn to be content is found in verse 11. It's built right into the word that he uses for content, which we have once again already looked at. We took note that this word, outer case, can be defined as content, satisfied, and self-sufficient. Thus, Paul's idea of being content is synonymous with satisfaction and a sense of self-sufficiency. And we'll get to the self-sufficiency later, but now let's focus on being satisfied in the Lord. And while we could turn to any book of the Bible and point out multiple verses, pointing us to the fact that the only true and ultimate source of satisfaction is the Lord, we need look no farther than the book of the Bible that we've been studying already. Just a few verses back, Paul was talking about running his race. We saw that he was pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His goal was to make it all the way to the finish line where he would receive his prize in full. And what was the prize that he had in mind? What was it that kept him running towards that finish line? It was the thought of finally making it to the end and receiving his prize, Jesus Christ, in full. The greatest satisfaction that he could ever experience and better than anything he could ever imagine. Verses 10 and 11 of this morning's text reveal to us what Paul has learned. And as we look to verse 12, we'll see how this process continues to progress. Philippians chapter four, verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. We see here in this verse both the effect of Paul's learning and the extent to which his contentment can reach. First, the effect. In verse 11, he says, I have learned. And now we see him saying in verse 12, I know how. He has learned to be content, and now he knows how to apply this contentment into the situations of life. And this is how the process is supposed to work. Little Johnny learns how to do his addition and subtraction, and now he knows how to do his math homework. Same principle applies here for learning how to be content. And this is the effect, learning and then knowing how to do. But what of the extent? And we can see from the rest of verse 12 the all-encompassing reach that this contentment covers. It leaves nothing untouched. Paul is able to be content in both the lows and the highs of life. 
Let's look first at the lows from our text. Humble means hunger and suffering need. Pretty low. Yet through all of these things, he knows how to be content. And not just content going into them, but perfectly content all the way through. And these are some strong claims that we have here from Paul. And if his friends, upon receiving this letter, were tempted to doubt whether or not this was actually true of him, all they needed to do was remember the setting in which he was writing this letter. For he would have been experiencing all three of these things while sitting in jail. He was brought low, he was hungry, and he was suffering need. Yet, through it all, he knows how to be content. And not just on the first day either. As the days continued to pass by, his contentment didn't expire or pack up its bags and leave him alone. It stayed the course. And during low and difficult times, this is where the real test lies. And not just for Paul, but for us as well. For what happens when mild discomfort gives way to moderate or severe discomfort? What happens when days turn into weeks, weeks to months, and months turn into years? Will your resolve hold? Will you remain content all the way through? Or will you begin to fumble and waver? Will you fully trust that God is in control, or will you begin to doubt and question him? Where are you at, Lord? Why is this happening to me? When is this going to end? Lord, how am I supposed to be content in this situation? And it's during these difficult times that we are tempted to doubt in God. We are tempted to forget his providence. We forget that he is sovereign over all things. And whatever it is that we're going through, it's not just by chance. It's not because of bad luck or because you drew the short straw or because God has forgotten about you. He is in control, and he's always been in control. The situation has not caught him by surprise, and he's not trying to figure out how to fix it on the fly. He is sovereign, and he is in control. Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that he works all things after the counsel of his will. And this is true, and it's always been true. But we must not lose sight of this when difficult times come our way. We must focus on him and his providence and learn to be content in whatever situation he puts us in. Paul has learned and knows how to do so. If we're willing to follow the teaching of scripture, we can learn to do the same. We can learn to be content in the lows and in the highs of life. And we now shift our focus to the other side of the spectrum, the highs. And sadly, this is so often the environment that we grow to be discontent within. And it's no accident that Paul not only makes note of the fact that he is content in the lows of life, but also the highs. In regards to this, Matthew Henry says, it is a special act of grace to accommodate ourselves to every condition of life and carry an equal temper of mind through all the varieties of our state. First, to accommodate ourselves to an afflicted condition, 
to know how to be abased, how to be hungry, how to suffer want, so as not to be overcome by the temptations of it, which are either to lose our comfort in God or distrust his providence or to take any indirect course for our own supply. And second, to a prosperous condition, to know how to abound, how to be full so as not to be proud or secure or luxurious. And this is as hard a lesson as the other, for the temptations of fullness and prosperity are not less than those of affliction and want. And if we're honest with ourselves, isn't this second condition one of prosperity where we most often sense discontentment in our lives? Think back to the last time you were discontent and ask yourself if it was because God took something away from you or because he did not add something new into your life. Commentator Dennis Johnson picks up on this well when he says, the challenge for us is not to be content when we have nothing. After all, we've never had nothing. The challenge is to be content when we have more than we need, but less than we want. And sadly, this statement is so true. We become so reliant upon our stuff that too often we forget that God is the one who supplies us with all things. We forget about him and then look to our stuff for satisfaction and contentment rather than God. And it's here that we circle back around to the previous lesson that we have seen from Paul. For the very word that he uses for content has within it the idea of being satisfied. And its eye is fixed on the one and only person who will satisfy. It's focused on the Lord and the Lord alone. Because anything or anyone else is nothing but a short-lived counterfeit. God is the only means of true satisfaction and if you have him, or more accurately if he has you, then you need nothing else to be satisfied or content. You don't need him plus this one other thing. All you need is him. And as I was preparing for this message and studying this text, the Lord brought to mind a question that he had, has had me ask of myself in varied seasons of life. He had me ask it of myself once again. Is Christ enough for me? I also ask the same question to each of you. Is Christ enough for you? God's word says that he is. God's spirit tells us that he is. But do I, do you, believe that he is? Are you so convinced in your mind, so convinced at the very core of your being that anything and everything you need is wrapped up in Christ? Are you so confident in this that you're no longer looking to the left or looking to the right for more, no longer speaking from need or want, because Christ is everything you need and more than you could ever want? Do you believe that he alone will satisfy? And this, this, friends, is the type of contentment that Paul is talking about, and it's within our grasp. Paul learned how to possess it, and he is passing along what he learned. And the sequence that we have seen up to this point in our text is that Paul learned how to be content, and after he learned this, he now knows how to get along in the ups and the downs of life. 
but there's still one piece missing from our puzzle. The learning and the knowing won't do a lot of good without the doing. Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us hanging here. In fact, he lets us in on the secret that he has learned. Verse 12b. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And once again, Paul has learned, but this time he uses a different verb. And this verb carries with it the idea of learning a secret or being initiated into the mysteries of something. And fortunately for us, Paul apparently isn't very good at keeping secrets because he spills the beans in his next breath. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Paul's unveiling of this secret to being content would have turned the commonly held view of Paul's day of contentment right on its head. Stoicism was a popular philosophy in the time of Paul, and to the Stoic, contentment in all things was the main objective, which is a good objective, they just took an odd way to get there. Their idea of being content could be summed up in nothing other than self-sufficiency. And the leading voice behind this movement at the time was a man named Seneca, who was often cited saying, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to him circumstances. The happy man is he who allows reason to fix the value of every condition of existence. For the Stoic, they believed that the key to contentment was to become emotionally self-sufficient by insulating oneself from the variables of pain and pleasure. But in order to fully arrive there, they attempted to reach a level of detachment that would make them impervious to the slings and arrows of worldly misfortune. This was their idea of how to be content and the common idea in the day of Paul. To become self-sufficient by their own reasoning and detachment so that nothing could ever hurt them. As one scholar put it, the Stoic would make of the heart a desert and call it peace. And it is against this cold backdrop that Paul hijacks the Stoic's word for contentment and breathes into it new life. Paul knows that he is not sufficient in and of himself to face all that life will throw at him and still be content. But he has been shown and now proclaims where the sufficiency can be found. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is the final piece to the puzzle. Paul has learned, and he knows, and now, because of Christ, he can do. He has the strength to be content in all things because he is in Christ, and Christ will give him the strength that he needs. He is not sufficient in and of himself, but because he is in Christ, he is now sufficient to face all that comes his way and remain content through it all. And this is the mystery that Paul has been let in on. This is the secret that he has learned. Christ is the key that unlocks the door to living a contented life. Our text this morning starts out with Paul rejoicing in the Lord that the Philippians revived their concern for him and sent him a gift. Yet he wants to make sure that they know he's not speaking out of want and he fills them in on the process that God has walked him through 
to bring him to this point. He has learned and he knows and now because of Christ's strength, he can do. And this reality is not only reserved for Paul or the Philippian church. It remains just as true for you and I today. If Christ is in you, then you have the strength to be content no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Whether it be humble means or prosperity, being filled or going hungry, having abundance or suffering need, God has shown us right here how to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And as we come to a close, in just a few minutes, each of us will step outside these doors and back into life with all that it brings. As we do so, may each of us commit ourselves to obeying the word of God that we've heard this morning, learning the process, and relying on Christ's strength. And when you find yourself in the next high or low that life brings your way, join with Paul in saying, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and just thank you once again for your word, for the richness of it and the depth uh, and the power it has to speak into our lives and just change us and grow us closer to you. And Lord, as we saw this morning how to learn, learning how to be content uh, and the secret that Paul unveils, may each of us just consider and think on these words, Lord, Uh, because contentment is something that uh, I dare say each of us needs more of in our lives. That when low times come, Lord, when we're faced with difficult situations, uh, that we wouldn't toss back and forth in the waves, but we would remain steady and be content through it all. Uh, That when life is going well, well, Lord, that we would just look to be content and satisfied in you and not looking to anything or anyone else for contentment but you alone. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for teaching us these things. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 9.30 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.